your cold one ready, maybe a cup of coffee, ready to settle down and talk a little bit about uh, the motorsports and what's happened this past week. And glad to have y'all here. It's Race Chat Live. Soon to join me will be our co-host, partner in crime, Taz the Tasmanian Devil, Taylor. Looking forward to a big show here tonight. Of course, this is show, I believe, number four of the season. So, moving right along, and as some would say, uh, after leaving two super speedway, in quotation marks, two super speedway races, let the real season begin. And I can say that that's probably the truth. Uh, What we've seen the past two weeks um, isn't necessarily, well, really, since... uh, you know, the California race uh, at um, uh, the race in Los Angeles, we haven't really had a typical NASCAR race. We're headed to Las Vegas this week, so looking for big things there. But, you know, first I want to start things off. Um, typically, we've had this discussion before, typically what's not – Great racing for the racers tends to be pretty good racing for the spectators. Um, As a racer, uh, you want things to be uh, as easy as possible. You want to be able to run away with the lead. You want to be able to capitalize on all of the aspects that it takes to get that race car to the racetrack on that particular day. Races are won at the garage. That's always been the, the the saying. That's always been the notice given to racers. Preparation and opportunity create success. Okay, um, and you know that the same can be said with the super speedway racing, but it doesn't. It's not as important, and I mean that, and I don't mean any disrespect, and I don't try to water down the competition or anything to that nature. But what we've seen Sunday is what some are saying, the greatest race in the history of NASCAR. I would say the greatest race in the history of this generation car. Not necessarily NASCAR. Look, a three-wide finish um, within thousands of seconds of each other, it's hard to top that. But what we've seen 
throughout most of the racing wasn't uh, a follow-the-leader type race. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, if any time ever, you know, it did feel like a super speedway race. There was a lot of jockeying for position. There were runs. Um, it was a spectacular race. It had me on the edge of my seat. Um, it was disappointing uh, to not necessarily hear that feedback coming from those that are within the sport. Um, we're going to discuss that and a whole lot more here tonight. We're also going to discuss Daniel Suarez and the impact that uh, he will have by stealing the win. Of course, probably wasn't on your chart to go ahead and lock into the playoffs, but as of right now, Daniel Suarez is locked into the playoffs. So that is good news for him, but does it necessarily mean that his future is secure at Trackhouse Racing? That's more for the discussion later on. Back to um, what we watched. And I can't wait to get uh, Taz Taylor's um, idea because, I mean, some are saying this is the greatest race ever. Um, I'm going to hold the wings back. I think it was a really good race. I like the direction that we are moving. Um, Does this type of racing need to be every weekend? Absolutely. And those who don't believe that don't want to see the sport grow into what it could be. And I know that that takes a little bit out of the steering wheel. It takes a little bit out of the shop. These races are not as much of a crapshoot as you think they are, and Denny Hamlin admitted that on his own podcast. It takes a certain skill set to be there at the end. Austin Hill has won three straight Daytona 250s and then capitalized this weekend in the Xfinity Series at Atlanta, there's no way odds of a crapshoot don't fall in your favor, right? So we are in a time period where this style of racing, either you're good at it and you figured it out or you suck at it. Maybe Atlanta, you're still able to kind of uh, fill out those, maybe those who are not as turned off by the speed. I, I think very much so that we were going the same speed at Atlanta that we were going at Daytona just on a smaller field. I'd uh, like to see that stat um, before the end of the show. Uh, what was the average speed of this race? Didn't compare it to Daytona. But now we are headed to Las Vegas. And the only thing that uh, tells us about the upcoming race is definitely the typical front runners will be favored by Vegas to win. You know, um, where can we capitalize on what happened in Atlanta? Do we turn all the racetracks into an Atlanta-style racetrack? I, I, I'm not for us racing the same type of racetrack in any type of series, right? I want to see different types of racetracks. And in different types of racetracks, we're going to have different types of racing. If there is other struggling tracks such as Texas or maybe Kentucky that we could bring back, even Kansas, and we can make the racing better, let's do it. But with this car, what we've seen over the last couple of years is our better races are the mile-and-a-half speedways. The races that seem to have difficulties are the bigger racetracks, such as Michigan, such as the old Atlanta, and whatnot. So I can't wait uh, to get more into depth 
uh, in these discussions, and I will, without further ado, uh, bring my co-host on, Mr. Taz Taylor. Taz, glad to have you on board, man. Hey, we got in for an exciting race, and uh, I heard you mention you want to hear the average speed between Atlanta and Daytona. Well, I got that for you. Average speed at Atlanta was 115.398 miles per hour, with the pole speed being 178.844 miles per hour. We moved back to Rumbun. We moved back to Daytona just a week ago. Average speed was 157.178 miles per hour, so about a 40-mile-per-hour difference. And then pole speed, 181.947, which is about 3 miles per hour faster at Daytona than in comparison to Atlanta. So it seems like single-car speeds are almost there, but in terms of the race speed, they're going at a slower I wouldn't say much slower, but they're going at a slower pace. Taz, don't let the the many cautions fool you in the Atlanta race. I think we had a lot more cautions in the Atlanta race than we did in the uh, uh, Daytona 500. We had several, a couple of red flags there too that completely slowed down. So how they average uh, that 115 miles an hour is the amount of time that it took. To complete the race, so that that one is not now, really necessarily the average that we're looking for. But the speed now, between hold on, uh, uh, I found something that is the, I found something that could be a little intriguing. Daytona had forty-one lead changes. And at Atlanta, there was forty-eight. Lead changes. There at, wow. also at Atlanta, there was six thousand five hundred thirty-six green flag passes, which averaged thirty-three point five per green flag lap. At Daytona, eleven thousand nine hundred twenty-two green flag passes that averaged sixty-six point two. So although there's a lot more green flag passes at Daytona. Atlanta had more lead changes. Right. Right, and that was relevant. I mean, look, um, we've seen – we didn't see very much three- and four-wide racing at Daytona, but we uh seen three- and four-wide racing uh, at Atlanta. How they ever got four-wide at Atlanta, I didn't think that they – I thought we were going to jump the whole field up. I mean, when they went four-wide, I said, this is Atlanta. They can't do that. Oh, no. And that was they nerve wracking. We we had a three wide finish, Taz Taylor. Like I mean, you know, and, yeah, and obviously oh there God, was no. That you know there was enough room for for that finish um, at the uh, start finish line. Um, but um, you know, uh, it is interesting. The qualifying speeds kind of tell the tell the true story there. Of uh, the uh, you know you got a mile and a half speedway versus a two and a half mile speedway, and you're basically running the same speed. So. Um, you know, what are your, uh, what's your biggest takeaway from this weekend? I mean, is it the greatest NASCAR race ever? So from what I, 
So from what I gathered up, I unfortunately did not catch anything of the trucks or Xfinity race, but I obviously watched the Cub Series race. They sucked. The but from what I gathered, the truck and Xfinity races pretty much were terrible. Um, some people believe that maybe the Xfinity and truck packages for Atlanta just does not suit for that style of racing at that particular track. Um, I don't know if that's something that NASCAR could look into and maybe change up some things to make it better. Or does NASCAR, I mean, I don't know what NASCAR is going to do if fans keep, I think if the same result, same kind of racing we get the second time we go to Atlanta happens again. You know, fans are going to be vocal about it, but the question is, will NASCAR listen and do something and look into it? I don't know. Now, in terms of the Cup Series race, I would say that was a pretty that was a pretty good race. Would I say it was the best race ever? Eh, I don't think so. Is it up there? Probably. And... One thing I do want to know, with that finish, with that was determined by three thousandths of a second, that is marked as the third closest finish in Cup Series history. There were two finishes that were better, that were much closer than that. Both were two thousandths of a second. And I'm not sure how far in of a second they determined was closer than the other. But the second closest finish in the Cup Series history. Chris, you were probably there for it. I wouldn't be surprised if you were. Was the Aaron's 499 2011 where Jimmy Johnson, I believe <laughs> Brian Vickers, was was the second place car. And then the closest Cup Series finish is the iconic Kurt Busch, Ricky Craven finish at Darlington. Yes, which was also involved a Bush and a Blaney and a Craven. So um, that is cool. And what's unique about the 499 Aaron's race uh, was that was during the push era of of super speedway racing. Tandem racing. Yes, it was the tandem racing, and that was the way that it ended. And that was the first time ever that I've seen six cars. Well, I think it was almost – I think it was eight cars – uh, that were there crossing the finish line. Somebody had to win in it, and, uh, you know, it was actually Dale Jr. Uh, pushing Jimmy Johnson uh, to the win for that one. Uh, one of the, one yeah, of the quotes that I took, Taz uh, Taylor, is we've had three significant races with this new car. And eye poppers, eye openers, um, close finishes, but they all seem to have track house. In mind. Well, let's go back to the melon run, right? The wall melon. That was track house. SVG. Yep. Track house. Now Chicago. Yep. Uh, track house. So, you know, track house is doing exactly what they need to do to put themselves on the map. Marketing is 
nine-tenths of the hard work, right? It is hard to come into a new business, into a business and be a disruptor. Trackhouse has become a disruptor because technically this would be a Hendrick or it would be a Penske. Trackhouse has hung their name on the walls, and they're doing it through marketing. They're doing it through branding, and now they're doing it out on the racetrack. Daniel Suarez's win wasn't just good for Daniel Suarez and Trackhouse. Daniel Suarez's win is good for the entire community of racing because of where Daniel Suarez is from, the marketing partners that he brought along, and uh, the position that Trackhouse has put themselves. Because let's go back real quick on Daniel Suarez. There was a whole lot of money that was written for him to come into Cup Series racing, correct? Somewhere on the bounds of $20 million, I'd say, somewhere a little bit more than that maybe. But that money eventually went away, right? All of that extra funding. Well, somebody had to get in there, and that's just that's the same thing that happens at our local racetrack. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, if you think about it, money out there. well, if you think about it, he came through, he went from Mexico series to basically the Xfinity series with Joe Gibbs. And then when Joe Gibbs had no choice but to put him in a cup ride in which a lot of people can say he was rushed and in a way, it make that is a fair argument because he probably could have benefited another another year or two in Xfinity and would have had a better Cup Series showing. But I think the grit and I think the grit and the uh, hard work that Suarez has has shown a lot through track house and he's, you know, I don't really want to say he's broken through, but I feel like he's starting to slowly come into the conversations of, is this a, is this a serious solid contender each and every week? And right. the, the one thing, Justin, and the one thing Justin Marks addressed to the media this past week I don't remember who shared this. I want to say Bob Pachris, but I could be wrong. Is that Justin Mark said there and said, is Daniel Suarez in his contract year? Yes. But was he in the hot seat? No. He goes, you got, I know everybody has heard the news of obviously us at Trackhouse signing two, three new drivers. And, a lot of people believe that Suarez was on the hot seat. And over here at Trackhouse, yes, Suarez was in a contract year. Was he on the hot seat? No. We had in full intentions of Suarez, and we are obviously working on contract details, but there's also other things within the company that are happening behind the scenes that you guys don't know about. And he also said that when the timing is right and once everything comes into place and we feel like it's okay to announce it, we will let you know. But in that meantime, you guys can have all your speculation you want. And 
you guys can keep knowing what's going on behind the scenes that you guys don't even know about until we feel like it's okay for you guys to know about. And that's where Justin Marsh is being smart about this. Like, he, he, from that there, he knows. Uh, he's got belief in his drivers. He knows where to go with track house in terms of how can we make track house into a top tier team to compete, a, a top tier team to compete with the Penske's, the Hendricks, the, um, the Joe Gibbs, the, I guess, used to be Stuart Haas. And Stuart Haas is another story. We'll get to that. But track house is just finding – it's like when we, whenever we count out track house or whenever a lot of people start counting out track house, it's when track house comes in and says, all right, you count us out, fine. We'll count, us, count ourselves back in. Make you guys believe right. in us again. Well, and I've got uh, a particular question stemming off of that that you're talking about there, Taz Taylor, because, you know, um, it seems to me that we're, um, you know, you have a, a second-term president, and at the end of the presidency, they, they have a numb, a nunchuck presidency. In other words, they can't get anything done for the future because that president is no longer going to be uh, in power. So um, we, we run into this in our government. Um, we also run into this in the CEOs who are retiring. Um, you can't move a company in the direction when you have a leader who's going to be stepping down because that leaves a volatile situation. What I'm getting at, Tess Taylor, is with this whole um, alliance, the whole uh, race alliance, and uh, the lack of transparency – uh, for the future of the uh, charter system, how does a track, track house go about securing maybe a couple of more charters when there is no definite signature that these charters will exist next season? It has to make business pretty hard. So with Justin Marks being very careful – and strategic about what he releases and what he allows you to know, it's a very smart move because can you technically pay 40 plus million dollars for a charter system that has not been set into stone for for to, to exist next year? I think that's going to hold up a whole lot of movement this year uh, in the NASCAR Cup Series with the lack of um, confidence that a deal is going to get done. So does that help Daniel Suarez or does that hurt Daniel Suarez? Chaz, I'm going to tell you right now, the vote of confidence is that Daniel Suarez is going to drive for track house for a long time. The truth is Daniel Suarez doesn't have $20 million a year and Zane Smith does. What is the likelihood that – Daniel Suarez has to move on to another organization. See, so this what we've where, seen with Daniel Suarez throughout his career has been, you know, a, a musical chair, right? He's going to land somewhere, but we just don't know where. He's found a home so at Trackhouse, but I really believe Pitbull has a lot to do with Daniel Suarez being at Trackhouse, and those two are kind of connected together without there really being, uh, what is it called, uh, any race thing or anything involved in that, but but let's just say 
uh, Pitbull really likes Daniel Suarez being there and uh, representing the culture of the uh, Latina uh, family. So I believe that those two do have a connection there, and it'll be hard to move on from Daniel Suarez. But with the volatility test, Taylor, of the charter system, it does leave things in the air for, for things to happen. I am not sold, Taz Taylor, and I'll let you get, jump on this. I am not sold that this secured Daniel Suarez's career at track house racing. Now, I know you wanna, you're want you ready to respond to that. Oh, yeah, because I think where track house could be going with this is we have three cup drivers that are under contract with – track house in some way shape or form we have one driver who is in contract with track house who's running the xfinity series but also on a cup series part-time schedule where am i going with this in terms of charters well denny hamlin mentioned something of this in his podcast he believes there's some kind of alliance or working partnership between Trackhouse and Spire. So, where does that go? Does Spire uh, sell a charter to Trackhouse? Because technically, Trackhouse loaned a driver out to Spire, which Inspire recently put, got a charter to make it work. So, my guess is, if I were Spire, you would sell that charter or make a joint charter agreement with Trackhouse. And Zane Smith is that third car. Well, we're going to use this here, for example. Zane Smith is that third car. Now, where does this Xfinity deal come into play? Trackhouse wants to play long term. They want to develop develop their drivers. So right now it seems like they're trying to develop Shane Van Gisbergen and SVG. How does he come into play? All of Trackhouse has the money to field their own Xfinity team. If it's a one-car team, there you go. You come into play. There's no charter system in the Xfinity series. Right. You get it. You get a. You get a. You get an Xfinity team there, and you develop your driver, and you can move. You can move them up or down at any time you want. Well, Taz Taylor, I think that, you know, we're, we're looking at Spire and we're looking at Trackhouse and we're looking at the similarities of the two organizations or the ability to help each other out. But there's also this third team over there that seems to work well with Colleague and Trackhouse, too. And that, I mean, with uh, Spire and Trackhouse, and that's Colleague Racing. Colleague Racing is the organization right now that seems to just be suffering, right? They've got Josh Williams in one car and Daniel Hemrick in the other. This feels like a back-of-the-pack car, right? This feels like a back-of-the-pack team. So, you know, I'm not sure what and how Trackhouse gets their hands on colleagues' um, charters. I don't know if maybe they uh, borrow them or lease them or buy them, but uh, I do believe that somewhere down the pipeline – Fire made a big investment, Taz. They made a big investment to bring on Carson Hosovar, to bring on um, the, uh, of course, um, 
uh, uh, Corey LaJoy, a long-term commitment with him. And I believe that they have three charters, correct? Uh, Zane Smith, who's on you know, yep. lease, basically. So that, that, that charter could be the charter that uh, Trackhouse is going to eventually have or something to that effect. What we're trying to say here is there's room to grow this team, right? And Trackhouse, I believe, wants to be a powerhouse team. They want to be competitive with Joe Gibbs Racing. They want to be competitive with Hendrick Racing, and they want to be competitive with Penske. Well, the one thing about all those organizations is they have three or more cars. Penske basically has four cars because the Wood Brothers car comes out of the same shop, but there's a lot of those kind of alliances going on, so we'll keep it in terms that Penske has three cars. Gibbs has four, uh, Hendrick has four, and um, uh, a JGR has four teams. But we've seen a lot of success from the two-car teams here of late because they haven't had to have um, all the extra resources going into those racers that are not necessarily capable of winning. So we've both agreed throughout the last couple of years that it's kind of better right now to have a two-car team than a four-car team because you know two of those cars are going to struggle, or at least one of those cars is going to struggle out of the pack, which means you've got resources going to something without the benefits from it. Now, um, that, that uh, can typically happen in any organization, and uh, right now, Trackhouse is gaining momentum by playing the system for what it is, and they have a third car. It's just being... Now, the path that you're going down, Chris, would you think that... Would you think that RFK Racing could fit into this mold. I mean, they got a third, they have a third open car that they let David Reagan run for the Daytona 500. But the question lies is uh, where does that car fit in the mold? Or does RFK field it in a full-time open car? And it's not the first time we've it's not the first time we've heard of that either because right. this comes into ties with Daniel Suarez when he drove for Gaunt Brothers. He raced a full-time right. season, and Gaunt Brothers was not a charter. Uh, trying right. to think where else that came into play because there was one other time and it happened too. Uh, JTG Doherty Racing, Ryan Priest, uh, with a, I believe it was 37 cars that he was racing. Mm-hmm. He was an open Correct. car before they shut down the 37 team. Correct. Yeah, I don't know what happened there, Taz Taylor. I got booted uh, by my phone line. Hey, look, it's been brought to our attention that there's been some blog talk radio issues, and we want to thank our fans for um, uh, being there and being supportive. We actually lost a radio show this week because of some um, the situation that happened with Blog Talk Radio that was completely out of our control. Um, we understand we've been around long enough to know that technical difficulties happen with Blog Talk Radio Network. We're not putting them down. We appreciate their services to us, but sometimes the uh, what we get is you know uh, technical difficulties, and and it's not from our our own a lot of times. Um, but uh, back to what we were talking about with the uh, with the charter systems and whatnot, Taz. Um, did you kind of finish up on that? Yeah, basically, basically it's a it's a yes. There's a business side of things that's kind of you know 
this chess checkers deal when it comes to charters. We know the Cup Series is going to have 36 charter teams. And we know that with Trackhouse, they're going to look into either taking the Spire third lease. And I I don't mean taking like, oh, oh, because you have our driver, we're taking your lease. No. I'm sure there will be a some sort of like 50-50 or 60-40 type of agreement deal there. Or there could be a time where, Chris, as you mentioned, the one colleague charter car could be sold to Trackhouse. And the one charter car I'm thinking of could be the 16 car and colleague could just run it as a full-time open car and just give multiple drivers a shot. Like AJ Allmendinger is going to be driving it for some races. Josh Williams getting an opportunity to run in the cup series for some races. Uh, I know there's a, I believe SVG is going to be running a colleague, colleague 16 car for a few cup races. And I'm sure there's a few others I'm probably missing off the top of my head. But anyways, there's the option of teams running or trying to play chess and checkers and business tricks to try to get a charter. Or if teams wanted to, they could field another full-time car, just make it an open ride. It has been done before in a recent time. Would teams do it again? Uh, if they have the money, probably. If they don't have the money, then unfortunately it's not going to happen. But right. I think with these teams run, if they, these teams, I think they're waiting to do it at the right timing because of, because as you said, Chris, it's seeming like the smaller the teams are uh, right now, the better it is. And that's not a knock on Penske or Hendrick or Gibbs in any way, shape, or form. They have established themselves of who they are as powerhouse three, four-car teams. And we know Roush at one point was a three, four-car team uh, powerhouse. And obviously finances and other things happened to leave them to their downfall. Now with Keselowski, it's seeming like they're slowly coming back into the rise, and I don't think they're in any way, shape, or form ready to release a third car on a full-time basis. I don't with Trackhouse with their Project Ninety One team. I don't think they are ready to field a third full-time car as of yet. So. I think with the smaller teams like RFK, uh, Front Row is another one, too, that has an open car. Uh, I think that these teams have the potential to field a third car. It's just, is it the right move for the team or is it a wrong move? And I think these two-car teams are in the situation of, do we field a third car? No, because it's going to hurt us. We'll run it in certain races, but that, that'll benefit. But we're not going to run it on a full-time basis because it could hurt us. And we don't want to do well, that because we're in, the- in a business now to make it revolutionary, right. in a way revolutionary, and show that you don't 
show everybody that you don't have to be a big three, four card team to be competitive week in and week out. You can be a small one right. or two card team and compete. Right. And and so this is where the disruption comes in. I can name you what uh, the three top teams that we said, right? Uh, uh, Pinsky, right? Uh, JGR. Pinsky has three. JGR has four. That's seven, right? Uh, H- uh, Hendrick has four. That's 11. And Joe Gibbs has four. That's 15. We only lost no, 16 said, cars. Well, you Wait, said Gibbs JGR. twice, but I think I know where you're going okay. with it. G- you said uh, SHR has four. No, 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 no. It's it's Hendrick, Penske, JGR, and is it? SHR has four. Am I missing one? Penske? Penske has three. Gibbs has four. Hendrick has four. Stuart Haas has four. I think everybody else is two or less. Okay. All right, so I was doing the math wrong on that somehow or another. Basically, what I was saying was there's three powerhouse teams. Of course, they're going to lock in 11 of those spots, right? So we only have 16 open spots. The disruptors come from the two-car teams. Right, those are the those are the the guys that come in and and try to unseat one of the bigger uh, guys. Stuart Haas Racing, I'm sorry, they're down to a tier two team. There's nothing going on in Stuart Haas Racing that leads me to believe they're headed in the right direction. Front Row Motorsports, uh, which is a two car team, uh, has that has that medallion right now, and I believe uh, you know Roush. Uh, Fenway Keselowski Racing could be in that uh, conversation as well. But here's Track House. Here's, you know, um, Richard Childress Racing. You know, all these teams that are just two-car teams and the success that they're having for those final five open spots, right? So there's basically a battle for those five open spots um, based off of how the current uh, model goes for NASCAR Racing. Um, you expect the top-tier teams to have those guys locked in. That It's not necessarily the truth at the end of the day. Um, but uh, what you do know is that, you know, um, uh, 2311, they're building a shop, Airspeed. And don't call it a shop, right? Because, the, the, I mean, if you've heard DBC uh, or anything about what this new um, or even actions detrimental, they they are not – calling their new building a shop. They are calling it Airspeed. It's very interesting, the branding concept that we're getting into uh, with, the, with the new generation of cup drivers and their, and their teams. We're not at the typical, you know, Hendrick Motorsports names anymore. We're into Legacy Motorsport Club. We're Track House. You're not building shops. You're building Airspeed. You know, it's really kind of kind of cool uh, the certain terminologies that we're getting from the new from the new breed. Is it profitable for a twenty three eleven team to have four charters right now? I don't see it. I don't see it profitable. I see four bays, but I see two other cars leased out to a smaller team. Because why is a smaller team going to invest money into drivers that are not capable of winning every week? You can have two drivers that are capable of winning if you have enough. Uh, resources and support through your organization. It's very hard for a one-car team. That's why JTG is out there on the island on their own. Um, you know, I'm sure that they have an alliance somewhere. I'm not really sure, 
Uh, but, you know, they're one of the only teams that's just a one-car operation. Right. So they're, they're connected to Hendrick. Interesting. So let's uh, let's jump ship. Uh, I, I believe we've talked enough about the potential. The one thing I do want to add is, Dale Jr., if you're waiting on the right time to get in on this charter system, you should have done that three years ago. It's very sad that we've gotten to the point to where charters were $2 million. Whoa, 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 now they're $40 whoa, whoa, million. Whoa. You, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I talking to Denny Hamlin right now? Oh, my bad. <laughs> don't worry. I heard, Don't worry. Denny said the same exact thing. <laughs> <laughs> he had a good point. <laughs> Dale Jr. sat I mean, around too long and spoiled his opportunity. Well, we may never see well, Junior Motorsports in Cup racing. Well, Hamlin literally said on this podcast that we are in a time with this business where if you sit around and say and, or think about you're going to do it, but you're not really sure or whatever, and your opportunity is not, not going to come anymore. He goes, if you want to take it, you 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 just have to take it at the brass ring and go with it. Hamlin literally said, he goes, I like Junior. He's a good friend of mine. He literally sat around and was wishy-washy for too long, and he should have, he goes, when the next-gen car came in, he goes, that's when Junior should have jumped ship. He could have kept his Xfinity team if he wanted to, but if he wanted a cup, cup charter or anything like that, he should have stepped in right there. But he didn't, and that's, and that's on him. So Dale Jr., since we brought his topic up, let's go ahead and jump into that one real quick. So he said basically this week that uh, uh can't see everything. There's a shit ton going on out there. Basically, he's commenting to the camera angles and the uh, close-up focus that they had on the field. From what we were able to see, and I – I listened to 90% of the broadcast on PRN radio. And let me tell you something. I didn't get to see what Dale Jr. was talking about because in my mind, I was, I was, I was hanging on to every word the PRN crew was saying. So I was getting the uh, audio without the visuals. But that's probably one of the main reasons why I turned on PRN radio versus the network, right? Because I'm 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 yawning for more. I'm yawning for more than just three guys sitting up there talking about strategy. I love the PRN broadcast. I love to be able to listen to their broadcast, MRN as well, because they don't just talk about strategy. They don't just talk about the top two cars that the camera's focused on. There's literally a guy for every corner who's giving you a play-by-play action of what the race cars are doing. It's really not hard to sync your radio with your TV. Radio broadcasts are most of the time a little bit further behind than uh, are the Internet broadcasts, a little bit further behind than the live broadcast on your television. If you have DVR, just pause your DVR. At the end of the National Anthem, that's the best time to do it. When, this, when the National Anthem is over, count one, two, three, pause. When the end of the National Anthem happens, one, two, three, unpause. Right? So that's, that's all you got to do. That's all you have to do to sync it up and and you know i'm with dale jr you've got to see more of the action on the racetrack fox has got to do a better job at getting the visuals to the fans no better experience than atlanta or talladega or daytona when we have a big field that's close together 
We, uh, you know, you get to Las Vegas, we're going to have cars strung out all over the racetrack. I understand. But when you have close pack racing, we need videographers who understand the assignment. Keep the focus back. Let's see all the cars, you know, uh, swishing and swashing and, and uh, you know, picking guys off. I mean, it was just, to, to my experience of watching it, I agreed with Dale Jr. Do you have any comments to what he said to that? I feel like I understand where he's going with the camera angles in terms of pack racing. But the other thing that drives me nuts with Fox production is, like, they don't – and I'm sure there's money involved with the, with the companies and advertisers that put in money for their commercials and whatnot. But the thing is that I can understand in cautions you'll go full-fledged commercial break, no side-by-side cameras. That's fine. But in green flag racing, you've got to do side-by-side. And it's a bummer because when you mentioned on the radio side that Chris Buescher spun out, it was a full-fledged, full-fledged co- or commercial break. There was no side-by-side. We didn't know about it until the commercials came back and said, oh, for six minutes. We took, we took, we took, we took a bad commercial break because because Chris Buescher spun out in turn three, and I'm like, and I'm like, we couldn't get side by side of a green flag run. I mean, shoot, right. SRX did better on side by side, and half the and they were and when they were side by side, nine times out of ten they were under yellow. Yes, NASCAR's got to come down to the table with the TV deal and say we've got to make sure that our fans are not cut off from the live action whether we do side-by-side or basically however Formula One does. I understand our broadcasts take a lot longer than Formula One. Formula One sits in a time slot. But we watch all these other professional sports where, where they don't have live action during commercial breaks. And that's just something that we've got to fix. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like watching boxing. You're not going to tune out in the second round to go to a commercial break because the damn fight could be over with by the time they come back. And that's just, you know, when you have people who are on the edge of their seats watching these races, Taz Taylor, great point. Let's make sure that we're taking care of the fans at home. Let's, let's you know, it's just there's they've got to fix the broadcasting because, you know, look, I'm going to tell people all the time, go to MRN, go to PRN, get your TV, set it on, set it on DVR. That way you can watch and, and listen to the race at the same time. You'll be able to get the visuals that you want to see and then a whole lot more from the broadcasting side. So um, definitely a good point there, Tess Taylor. Tess, uh, there was a, quite a few penalties uh, given out this weekend, and one of them was quite peculiar with the type of uh, uh, penalty. Well, not just the type of penalty, the, the accusation, right? I'm, and I'm talking about none other than Joey Logano and his mittens. Taz, do you have a little bit more information about what was going on there? And, and has it been proven that he had these mittens on at Daytona? So I get somebody caught uh, an in-car camera of Logano at Daytona. And, and at the angle that they got it, it looked like Logano did have them at Daytona, but the angle or how he had his or how his move, hand movement went 
it wasn't very evitable to really make a solid case saying that he had him at Daytona. He very well may have, but he very well may not. Now, in Atlanta, when they showed it, he it, it was clear as day. He had a glove with webbing, and it looked like uh, Duck's, Duck's feet, basically, or his scuba diver's uh, floppers, flippers, floppers, whatever the heck you want to web. call them. <laughs> yeah, web feet, web, 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 web hands. And it looked like a catcher's mitt, pretty much. And I guess in the NASCAR rulebook, somebody did pull up that you cannot have any additional, like, fabric or webbing or modification to the gloves. Like, all five fingers have to move freely type of deal, blah, blah, blah. And I guess, and my guess is the reason why is because you yes you can have your hand out the window to kind of affect the how the air moves around your car but i guess with the webbing it kind of affects it more and it doesn't affect the air in a natural effect versus uh a normal hand or a regular glove when you put it up, your hand out through the window. I don't know. It, it was a weird one. I've never thought about that at all. It was it was an odd one, but I don't. Other than that, I don't see where the full official plus side is to it, or where the negative side of this that NASCAR is coming up with is a problem. Um, It's a strange one. I will say that. I've never heard of a penalty because of a glove, but that's something new. This this comes down to the hand out the window. There's been several times that uh, broadcasters and and TV viewers have caught something. One One of the biggest ones ever was Danica Patrick pulling her hands off the steering wheel at the wreck at Daytona. Up to that point, most drivers had never thought about securing their hands before a big wreck. Well, we've watched Logano over the years at these super speedway races stick his hand out the window, right? And then some people would argue, oh, he ain't doing nothing, you know. But, uh, Taz, when we're playing a game of thousands of a second, when you create downforce, you you're creating a, a, a an advantage to your car. I want to know how long the webbing had been going on and whether those two actually have coincided with each other through the entire time. Jody obviously slipped up. He obviously slipped up with these gloves on. I, I don't think that this is something that you, as you said, the replay that they seen from Daytona wasn't clear or definite. Well, if that's the case, then we don't know really how long this has been going on. And it may have been the strategy from day one with Logano sticking his hand out of the window. That Look, what sounds crazy to another guy would be like, I remember years ago, the, the talk at dirt tracks was aero is not an issue at dirt track racing. And then I met a car owner who said, I spend thousands of dollars getting every bit of aero advantage out of this race car that I can get. And guess what? Now they admit there's aero racing and in, 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 in dirt track racing. There's there's an aero advantage. If you can find an advantage, you will you will try your best 
to capitalize on that advantage. And that is just the way racing is. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a stiff penalty. Um, have they come out yet with uh, the uh, type of infraction, Taz Taylor, that this is going to lead to? So do believe – so I have – I did find a full penalty report because hit, Logano was not the only penalty handed out uh, no, that was announced not. today. Um, I'm trying to see. There we go. So Logano was, I believe, fined $10,000. Yes. Logano was fined $10,000 for a glove safety violation uh, which ended up being a competition penalty. Plus, basically, instead of starting in the front row for Atlanta, he had to start at the rear of the field. Plus, through a drive-through penalty, which Logano luckily, by luckily, and I mean luckily, because he had to be praying and wishing to God and everything for an early yellow, and he got one at the beginning of lap two, which saved his rear end. <laughs> um, yeah. Lucky but, Logano. Anyways. But anyways, yeah, $10,000 fine for Logano. No points, no nothing. That's just He just got fined some money. Other penalty, on the other hand, for the Cup Series was, uh, and this happened Friday. Right. This right. happened Friday before, or Saturday. Before cars even hit the track, right? Yeah, they had it was an issue. Uh, the, 10, the 10 in the 41 Stuart Haas racing cars had their – uh, roof air deflectors not be in compliance to NASCAR. They were confiscated early in the race weekend. And <laughs> I guess NASCAR found out that it was not a NASCAR manufactured part to, because it, they found out it was more of a team modified mm. part. Ow. And the, this and is going to be teams, a stiff one. And those teams were penalized 35 points for driver and owner. Uh, so far, I have not seen anything if Stuart Haas is going to appeal this a pen- this penalty or not. And this hurts mm. uh, both, both of these teams because uh, with the points penalties handed to Priest and Gregson, Priest now has zero points, 36th overall. Before the penalty, he was 24th and 12 points behind the cutoff. So he's now uh, 47 points behind the cutoff and six. He's now 47 points behind the 16th place cutoff. Noah Gregson, who was 29th in points and was 18 points under the cutoff, now sits with a negative six points, 43rd overall, and is now 53 points behind the cutoff. My gosh. What a hole that they have already dug themselves into. And look, they may, they may have penalized them and set a certain amount of money for this penalty, but the true penalty comes at the end of the year when these points are all added up and they're sitting somewhere 29th in points instead of 21st. There's a big payout difference between 21st and 29th. Um, so you take the penalty from Joey Logano. Basically, both teams were trying to create the same thing, extra downforce. 
One team got cost $10,000 and a drive through penalty. The other team was given max fine $35,000 points taken away so far. Uh, that put one team so far back in the gutter. He's going to have to, you know, win three races just to get out of 30th place. So, um, absolutely insane. Um, Stuart Haas, man, y'all can't get your shit together, right? It's one thing after the other. You keep shooting yourself in the foot. You're already, you're, you know, there's nothing you can do to save your top tier, tier status. I'm not expecting you to be uh, Ford uh, 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 racers next year. And if you are, I doubt that Ford's going to give you much of anything to help you out based off of the way that your performance has been. Stewart wants to pass the buck and say it's the, it's the engineers and whatnot. Obviously, it all comes down to funding, and I think that that's something that's lacked at Stewart Haas Racing over the last few years, and Tony Stewart fails to address the true issue that if he doesn't get money into this organization, he can't get the best people for his organization. And that goes with drivers. That goes with uh, engineers, crew chiefs, and whatnot. Though he wants to say he's got the right people in place, I, I, I beg to differ that. They wouldn't be making these kind of mistakes if that was the true uh, legitimate uh, uh, facts. Um, unfortunately, they also lack one other thing, too. Their... What's that? They also lack one other thing, too, and that's color, and that's color in the number 10 cars this year because they all look like test cars. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's like 50 yeah, shades right. of gray. <laughs> oh, my God. Hopefully you would have a field day with that one. Um, yeah, so, you know, they, they've shot themselves in the foot. They are uh, no longer acting like a Tier 1 race team. Um, th- these types of penalties will be costly for the organization in more ways uh, than one. We may have four charters for sale at the end of the year, uh, Taz Taylor, uh, in the direction that Stuart Haas is going. Um, there's also been um, – uh, so let's go real quick. I do believe we have uh, a stat of the day that's been prepared. You have one, and there's another one as well. So you read the first one, and then I'll kind of chime in on the second one. Let me find it real quick, though. Yeah. um, There's actually two of them. Uh, Let's see here. I got them. So in two races, there's only been one driver in the Cup Series who has – Two top, not only top ten, but two top five finishes. And that's the guy who had a front row seat to the three-wide finish, Bubba Wallace. Wow. And to top that off, Chevy has swept the last two weekends. They are 6-0 and at the beginning of the 2024 race season. So Chevy has been undefeated. In all of their races, how about how about Austin Hill, man? I know I opened up with a little bit of that, but Austin Hill not only taking three Daytona 250s, but or 300s or whatever it is, but now he's also uh, capitalized at Atlanta, two wins in a row. Uh, Jesse Love, man, that's the series where names are made, and I, I promise you, there is still a whole lot of hell of a good talent. Uh, down in the Xfinity Series. Uh, though the racing was kind of off par uh, for the most part, uh, I still enjoyed uh, watching these young kids and uh, what they bring to the table, especially the young Jesse Love. I really I have a lot of high expectations about where Jesse Love is going to be here in the next couple of years. Um, 
let's see what else we got. So um, I think we've got uh, so Atlanta. Uh, do you do you think Atlanta would be a good place to race uh, the championship? Go. Are you in favor of going back to Atlanta to end the season now after the last few races that we've seen there? So, I'm not in favor, but I wouldn't be mad if it actually happened. And because I will... I would like it to be the season finale because of the entertainment value. It ends the season on a big high note. But at the same time, I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of having with how the champion is crowned nowadays where it's basically the first one of the final four drivers that crosses the finish line at the race's end is the champion. If it was in a different points format, like, say, the old Chase format, and I know we'll never go back to it, and I'll be surprised if we ever do, if we were to ever go back to it, I would say, yes, let's run it back. Let's go to Atlanta for the season finale. I'm 110% down for it. But with how they crown a champion now, as much as I would like it, I don't because I'm not – a fan of super speedway championship races. I know people have said, why don't we make Daytona or Talladega or now even Atlanta like a season finale race. And I would be all for it if we were in a different points format, how we crown our champions. With how we do it now, I don't think that's a fair contest, a fair contest. Because in super speedway races, it's basically chess match. Like it's a, it's basically kind of a free. I don't really want to say free for all, but that's kind of what it pretty much is. I mean, you could have a driver who been in serious contention all year long for a championship. Now you go to a super speedway, and he wrecks out in five laps because of a stupid big wreck that shouldn't have happened in five laps. And I get that kind of, that can happen in anywhere else, but it's more likely to happen in super speedway style racing than it is in anywhere else. Right. I agree with that, Taz Taylor. I'm more I'm more inclined to want to see uh like what the Super Bowl does. First of all, we call it the Super Bowl of racing, right? The Great American Race. You don't just be, you don't just win a race at the Daytona five hundred, you become a champion. So the easy fix is just to move the Daytona 500 to the last race of the season, and we would crown a champion, and it would be the Daytona 500 champion. But life's not like that. So if we had it any way to choose, and I think this would be my best bet, let's go like what the Super Bowl does and go to different areas, pick it out two years in advance, say, well, in 2026 we're going to end the championship at Texas, or 2025 we're going to do it at Homestead. 2027, we're going to do it at Atlanta. And and use these tracks. Of course, you can't go to Delaware in November, right? You can't race at Michigan in November. Right. So there'll be certain tracks that you won't be able to go to, but we can stay within the range of the fair weather tracks. We've got three tracks in Florida, uh, two of them. I know Homestead and Daytona, 
right? We've got Texas. That's a fair weather state. We've got uh, uh, we've got uh, Las Vegas. We also have uh, Arizona. Um, those are fair weather states. Pretty pretty good pretty good uh, that weather in, in November. And that's a fair point you make up because uh, I'm going to mention another form of motorsports that in the in the soon to be finished three seasons uh, here in the states, uh, they'll be going on number four season number four sometime in I want to say late summer early spring, but I could be wrong on the date. There is. Um, Rallycross, Travis Pastrana and Dana White's uh, joint partnership of Nitrocross. They have, in season one, when they did this in 2021, their season fin- five race season finale ended in Florida. Uh, then season right. two ended in season two ended in California. Season three this year is now in Las Vegas. So they've moved all around to not only appease fans, but it gives the drivers a different challenge going to the season's end. Um, and I feel like what you're hinting at, Chris, would be a good idea. Now, in terms of that, like I said, in this current point format, I would like Atlanta to be a points cutoff race. Like, I would say, if it were me, like, I would... I would honestly like Homestead, Atlanta, and Martinsville to be your round of eight, three races to get your final four. Like, I honestly believe those are the best three tracks you could ask for in a round of eight, in my own personal opinion. Because you have the, your typical mile and a half style racing, but Homestead is we always go to Homestead once a year, and with Homestead, it's a it's a it's such a wild card kind of a track in a way because obviously we go there once a year as I had mentioned, but it creates good racing because you're getting multi groove racing from start to finish, and drivers always sit there and say you never know which groove is the best groove for the longest time because at certain points, the low groove is it. But then there's certain points where the high groove is where you want to be. And so you have that mixed in. Now let's go to Atlanta. We just witnessed Atlanta this past weekend. We know the wild card factor that can play into factor. Then -hmm. you have Martinsville, the the typical short track nail biter. Who's going to throw it in in the final two corners on the last lap? Right, and Martinsville is far enough up the schedule to be in one of the last races of the season. There'll be those that argue, well, you can't race Martinsville uh, in November. Well, let me tell you something. We race, uh, we did race New Hampshire one year uh, in November, and so it, it is, it is possible. You're probably not going to get the best weather the further north you get, but you're still open to the idea of a track like Nashville, right? Nashville could could very well host. A season finale, uh, maybe even a St. Louis. Uh, just imagine going to that place and having a season finale. I mean, you know, there, there are open possibilities of being able to move Bristol. Exactly, it, it is a little bit when you're when you're in Bristol, you're kind of on the Virginia line. So that's once again 
We're inching a little bit further north, but, uh, you know, hey, favorable. we're looking for a favorable weather. And we know in NASCAR, all you got to do is sign up for a race and you'll get the worst weather you ever expected, right? That's just <laughs> – we did a race in Chicago and it wound up <laughs> – You're not wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, shoot, we had to move that – we had to – we had to do a last-minute change on the L.A. Coliseum because of rain. We had the Daytona 500 move to a Monday because of rain. <laughs> right. So we know kind of how to deal with weather, right? Uh, we haven't put snow tires on there yet. Uh, but, um, they, you know, this has been some great discussions here tonight, Taz, and uh, we want to leave the uh, – want to leave a little bit of time left. Uh, we've got SRX to talk about real quick. Of course, uh, you know, if you're into podcast listening, I, I believe – if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably into podcast listening. Uh, maybe you caught Dale Jr. download uh, with none other than the infamous lying, cheating, low-down, dirty scoundrel of Ray Everingham uh, on the podcast. Of course, you would have learned certain things that uh, there was two-way radios between the 24 and the 3. Did you know that? I didn't know that, and I'm sure NASCAR sure as hell didn't know that either. Uh, that's what Ray Everingham said on there. He also said that he had no intentions of becoming Jeff Gordon's crew chief, that uh, he he said to Rick Hendrick, why don't you go get Andy Petrie? I just want to rent on the cars. Um, that is not the story that we've ever heard of how Jeff Gordon was lured from what they don't want to talk about, Bill Davis racing, up to the Cup Series and the fact that uh, – but Dale Jr. did have an interesting uh, uh, perspective with Ray Everham, and he asked him, he said – how did you go from just an ordinary kind of get-on-the-nerves type of crew chief guy or, or, or car guy to becoming the one that everybody looked up to? And I was very intrigued on how Ray Everham answered that, and I think that, uh, I think that he didn't even catch the diss, you know, that basically Earnhardt was saying, how did you, how did you a guy like you who, you know, if, if you look at his storied career, he he was nothing but a man. He got Alan Kowicki fired his ass. I mean, and and you look at who was on that team at the time of the Underbirds. Uh, Everham was there for a short minute. Robin Pemberton was there. A lot of big names in racing uh, that had not yet flourished or was about to flourish uh, were part of that '92 race team uh, with Alan Kowicki. But uh, Ray Everham definitely had a few things to say about the SRX series, and I did find it quite amusing, Taz Taylor, that he wanted to add that he thought the series should go in a different direction, but unfortunately other people that had uh, cards on the table wanted it to go in the other direction. The one thing that he didn't really emphasize on was what direction that he was will- that he was wanting to take the series in. Maybe Taz Taylor, you could fix that. Maybe I missed something, but uh, let's uh, let's open that door up and talk about Ray Everham on the Dale Jr. podcast. So, I did catch a glimpse of detail, and if and I'm going to say this if I remember this right. So, Ray Everham told Dale, as you mentioned, Chris, that he envisioned SRX to be basically a different form of IROC, basically keeping, basically what he's saying is bring in different drivers of different motorsports and run in 12 identically prepared cars, just like an IROC, but it's like the old IROC days. 
basically Ray Evernham said SRX was supposed to be today's modern era of IROC. That was my vision. That was where I wanted it. And the other partners didn't see my vision that that way entirely because Evernham said he wanted to bring in drivers not only of different motorsports, but the reason behind SRX was to bring in guys like Dale Jr., like Jeff Gordon, he used for an example, to not only bring up the driver roster and bring in the marketing partners behind them, but also bring in the fans, get fans excited to see those drivers again. And I know this is where the joke that uh, you and that you and Craig always make saying it's a senior racing tour, but Evernham saw it as saw it as we need to bring IROC into the modern world. How do we do that? We bring in the guys that were in the IROC series, like these guys. Yes, we can bring in current stars for a one-off race or two races, but how they did it was not how you do it. We you obviously want to follow. He goes and and I'm, he didn't go into detail, but basically, from what I'm seeing is that in season one, when it was Everham's era, he had ten different or ten full-time drivers. Well, nine if you take out Tony Kanan, but and realistically, he had ten full-time drivers. I mean, shoot, if it weren't for visa issues. We would have had an F, a Formula One driver racing an SRX. Yeah. We would have had a past Formula One driver racing an SRX. And a, and a lot of the drivers before season one of SRX started, um, guys like Tony Stewart, Bobby Labonte, that literally asked the question, what guys are you looking forward to race to? They literally said Mark Webber. They wanted to race against a Formula One driver because they never had a chance to do it. Right. There was never a time to do it. And the only time you right. would see that in the old in the early two thousands was in IROC because you would never see and back then you would never see a Steve Kinder race against a Dale Earnhardt Junior. You would never see right. um uh say John Force. You would never see John mm-hmm. Force race against Helio Castroneves. Right. You would always see in IROC. And that's what right. Evernham was trying to do. He wanted the, the driver pairings that you never have seen and put them together. That's why Tony Stewart said, I've never raced against Paul Tracy. And as SRX came, he got it. He made it happen. Um, we've never, we, we've never seen. Yeah, but Bill we traded Elliott Mark Weber for raced. Paul Tracy. Yeah, you know, there, no, there we was Mark Webber from Michael Waltrip. We traded oh, Mark Webber from Michael Waltrip. Oh God. Hmm. Well, there was it was a lot of a lot of mistakes made, and and Everham getting himself out of the deal, uh, you know, at the end of the first season. I don't know if that was good for it or bad for it. Either way, in the end, there is no more SRX series. Um, and I can it's place a lot of that off. blame on Tony Stewart. You know, uh, Tony Stewart uh, took advantage of wanting to win instead of learning how to make a show. And it was supposed to be a fun show. It was supposed to be 
Um, you know, the nitty gritty dirt style, uh, Saturday Night Fever, um, that type of uh, environment, and it, it and it didn't it didn't transpire like that. You actually had guys who were willing to go out there and just say, "Hey, I'll do it, whatever it costs to win this trophy." That's fine because they have a trophy on their shelf that uh, on their shelf that uh, may mean something to them. But the problem is, is them winning by three by three seconds didn't leave us for an exciting race. We had six races to put on something good, and mostly other, it was just runaway races. And the other part, for too, that Everham, the, the other part, too, that I don't think Everham really touched on, and I wish he did a little bit more, was I think he saw the disappointment from when he left. Of, because, remember, season one, every track minus Nashville – uh, every track they went to, we saw a local uh, short track hero or all-star, whatever you want to call it. And that's what made SRX different in comparison to IROC because IROC was always the international race of champions. You know everybody. But with SRX, they brought in the local drivers to give them a spotlight, give them a chance to run with these superstars that they probably never have and probably never even will do it again of getting a chance to do. And obviously it showed because Doug Toby, um, he won the first ever SRX race. He ended up getting a truck ride for one or two short track races. Um, Brian Brown is another one. He raced in. No, Carpenter was. Carpenter did a dirt late model race through St. Louis. Uh, That's how he got the truck ride. He didn't do SRX. Um, Brian Brown, who who ran SRX with Ray Evernham, got a truck start when they raced in the dirt in Knoxville. And then when the. And when they tried implementing it in year two, it was kind of like it was there, but not really because if you look at five flags, yeah, you had Bubba, Bubba Pollard, fine, dandy. South Boston, you had your true local hero because the guy that ran there was literally literally had South Boston as his uh, home track. Then you go to Stafford, you have Money Matt Hirschman, who's big here in the Northeast for uh, tour style modifieds. Then you go to um, Asheville Fairgrounds, which they had a true local guy there. And then your last two races, your local guy was a big name star. He's already made a name for himself. And Ken Schrader and Dale Blaney, and, or not Dale Blaney, Steve Blaney. And nothing against them, but you, it's like take, they basically took a local no-name guy and say, pretty much kicked them to the curb and didn't even give them a chance. Right. Yeah, we didn't go kind to a place like Iconic to, Bowman Race like, Stadium. You know, I, I think the Myers, the brothers, a, the Burton. They showed up to a minor professional league tryout as a pitcher. Right. You get two pitches and you're and they pretty much didn't even look at you and said you're cut from the team. Like they didn't even really right. look at you. 
it seems like that there was that, that series in itself was trying to go in three different directions with three different people at the helm saying this is where it should go. And each of those uh, moves that they made kind of helped the quick demise because, you know, you went from a million people watching it to half a million. That's a considerable amount of drop-off, right? I mean, what, what happened to the other half a million people uh, that were watching that series? You and I, we were fairly excited about it in year one. Year two is when me and Craig kind of started, well, this seems to be more of a senior racing league. And, and you know, in the end, we, we were we were kind of right. You know, we, we, we kind of called that one. Um, it would have been more... Uh, beneficial for the series to have stayed with the limelight of the stars. Uh, you know, you say that these guys were given these opportunities, but is that really what we were trying to uh, accomplish with the with the SRX series? It was supposed to be superstars racing superstars. Ron Katz, John Force, Lewis Hamilton, Dale Jr., <clears throat> Travis Pastrana. Um, uh, um, Oh man, what was the guy that got killed? The the uh, the hooligan car, Ken Ken Block. Um, you yep. know, those were the names that we that we threw out there, and then we even started in other names like Michael Jordan. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, oh um, God, uh, Tom Brady. You know, now we're talking superstars and race cars. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the series had potential. It didn't capitalize on it, like so many good things in the world. What starts out strong winds up with too many people at the head of the table saying we should go in this direction. No, we should go in that direction. And in the end, it kind of it, it complicated everything to its own demise. Leaving CBS and heading to uh, ESPN, uh, a, a channel that doesn't care that anything about motorsports, that's a big mistake, right? Aligning, aligning themselves one. more with the Cup, with the Cup series and the types of tracks that they were racing at being that closer one, to those, that one kind I, of I think was well. a last-ditch effort. I think it was a last-ditch effort to try to try to make right what they were making mistakes at, right? Because they were trying to well, bring in the superstars to get the ratings. But, but the superstars that they were getting were too. the same superstars that we could see on Sunday, and people are not going to trade their, their right. Sunday race for a Thursday night race, Tony Stewart, especially when yep. you're going out there waxing ass on everybody and winning your own championships over and over again. So, you know, if any, if anything, after year one, Tony Stewart should have stepped aside and allowed the series to grow and kind of create its own, uh, its own, um, uh, uh, mythical experience. I mean, I know we have a few minutes left and we still got to get the hot picks, but I personally feel like with Everham, I want, and I said this in the group, when I always wanted to put shade on Everham for leaving SRX, and I always wanted to praise Don Hawk because at least Don Hawk tried to keep it alive and keep it going. And hearing some of these details leak out from Everham on the Dale Jr. download, it makes you see the bigger eye opener and the bigger picture and make you realize that maybe we shouldn't have put so much shade on Ray Everham. Because Everham had a vision and a plan for how the series should work and succeed, and the other partners involved said, "No, this is not where this is not the direction we want to go in." And I don't blame Everham one bit because for him being the founder and the guy that pretty much um, 
came up with how the car is supposed to run and how it's supposed to look. Uh, it, I mean, you have a guy who literally created SRX from the ground up in more ways than one, and you're mar- basically saying your marketing guy screwed up because they wanted to right. go in a different direction. And Everham's like, this is not where, this is not where we're going in. We can't think just money and marketing. You also have to think the the drivers and uh, right. what's gonna what's gonna bring what drivers are gonna bring fans in the stands. And and Everham literally said it best. He wanted it to be like IROC, bring in the guy, make it different forms of motorsports in one shot. Yes, you can still have a half NASCAR roster. But bring in your indie car guys. Bring in drag racing guys. Bring in a, a local star to each track just to bring in different variety. Give guys opportunities. And shoot, there's even one guy who benefited most out of this SRX deal, and it's Ernie Francis Jr., who went from a seven-time right. Trans Am champion. Now he's in the Indy Light Series looking to go into IndyCar. Right. And there's one broken promise from the SRX series that to this day still disappoints me. Taz Taylor, do you know what that broken promise was? I don't even know. Helio Castroneves giving getting a ride for the Daytona 500. Oh, yes. That yes. broken, that broken promise through. still lives vividly inside of me yep. because Don Hawk failed that what? one. He did, and whether it was his fault or, or whoever, the promise was made, and, it, and 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 nothing has ever come about at it. So if, if we could fix one damn thing from the default of the SRX series, if there's one broken promise out there that could still be fulfilled, let's get Helio Castroneves in a Daytona 500 because he he deserved it, and he was promised that he would get it. Unfortunately, life is filled full of broken promises. Taz Taylor, let's go on into hot picks. As I know uh, there's a lot. This is where the real race season starts. Las Vegas. I want to see what the odds are. I'm going to check the odds while you get into the hot picks. All right. So I looked at Vegas odds, and then I was like, okay, here's the Vegas odds. Then I looked at, of course, my stat sheet to – kind of break things down even better. Well, I hate to say it, but I'm going to go against a lot of the Vegas odds here, not in a huge way, on who the favorites and contenders should be. Because I have listed Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, and Kyle Busch as the favorites for Las Vegas. Um, I'll go into a quick reasoning. Those three drivers have the best average finish at Las Vegas amongst all active Cup Series drivers. All three of those drivers have also won at this track and also have pretty well reasonable stats as well. Um, In terms of contenders, I have Martin Trix Jr., Kyle Larson, and Denny Hamlin. Kyle Larson and Martin Truex Jr. have yet to win at this track, and they're always good at mile-and-a-half speedway races. Benny Hamlin, he has one uh, 
He has one win at this track. However, his top fives and top ten uh, in comparison to how many Vegas starts he has, pretty much the ratios are there, are not the greatest of what you would expect out of a typical Denny Hamlin. And then, of course, the underdogs. I have Chris Buescher, Justin Haley, Michael McDowell, um, who have scored either at least one top five or a few top tens at this track. Uh, that you, would, I mean, Chris Buescher at this point, you, I guess you can expect. But Justin Haley and McDowell, they um, fit a true underdog scenario for Las Vegas. So without further ado, Chris and I will now elaborate a little bit more to fill up our list. Yeah, um, so uh, I can see the contenders. Larson, of course, favored by Vegas, uh, the the unanimous favorite by uh, 400. Uh, William Byron, second. Um, I'm not seeing a William Byron on this list. Uh, Taz Taylor, um, if Vegas says William Byron is a is a major threat, uh, I just I don't uh, I don't see any point in furthering this any longer. Um, we would definitely have to put William Byron as a favorite there at Las Vegas. Does the stats say that, though? In 10 Vegas starts, he has two wins, two top fives, three top tens, and has led 173 laps with a 17.7 average finish, which is just barely higher than William Byron, or or just barely higher than Justin Haley, who only has two top tens. Interesting. Another one that's on the uh, Vegas board that uh, seems to be sitting high and mighty right now uh, is none other than Christopher Bell. Now, we always feel like Christopher Bell um, isn't um, – he, he's the underdog. He has been the underdog story the last two years. He has made the final four the last two years, and I don't think anybody's ever even given him a chance to win a cup championship. Um this is Vegas. Do you take do you take your chance on Christopher Bell? Is he a serious contender, or or maybe just uh, um, keep it between the lines, guy? Maybe he's just uh, maybe he's just a small threat. So I'm gonna go on a limb. Favorite? Or I'm gonna contender? go with you. I'm gonna go with you on William Byron. Quick, I will throw him as a favorite, being that he does have two wins here at Vegas. Um, uh-huh. In terms of in terms of Christopher Bell, I have I can't put him as a favorite. I can put him as a contender. Uh, he only has one top five and two top tens to back him up right now. Okay, and he has no wins. So he's kind of like a Kyle Larson at this track. Right. Well, Kyle Larson is the favorite uh, by, by by a significant but, amount to win uh, this weekend's race. Uh, as of right now, Christopher Bell sits one, two, three, four in that five spot as a plus 900. So uh, Vegas is seeing something. I, I, I see Vegas maybe uh, uh, seeing a little bit of light with the Toyotas here. Um uh, I see names like they, Tyler Reddick at plus eleven hundred. They did that last week too, where they said Denny Hamlin 
and Joey Logano were the heavy favorites. And, yeah, Logano, okay, but Hamlin wasn't really one that was up front all race long for Atlanta. And they always had – and they had him as a heavy favorite. So, I like Vegas odds, but at the same time, I see it as – I mean, as you said, Chris, stats don't necessarily always lie. (laughs) Right, right. Mike Perricone very rarely total lie. Uh, how about Tyler Reddick? Tyler Reddick is a plus eleven hundred. I don't really. I'm not on the. I was big on the Tyler Reddick train a couple of years ago. I kind of cooled off after last season. He had kind of a so-so year. Yeah, he got a couple wins or whatnot. But but he was kind of on and off through most of the season. Vegas says eleven hundred plus eleven hundred for Tyler Reddick. I'm not sure that I would I would put him uh, maybe I would maybe use him as an underdog. Um, maybe maybe too much emphasis is being put on Tyler Reddick right now. Does he belong on this list somewhere? I can see underdog. He has he literally has just about the same stats as Christopher Bell in terms of top fives and top tens, but his average finish sits around twentieth, twenty first. Um, I know this is a track that can favor Tyler Reddick's driving style. If we know Tyler Reddick for how he has started his cup career, it was always the tracks that he should be running well and should be contending the win for. He does not finish. Um, So I could see Tyler Reddick being an underdog for that scenario. Um, One, there is one favorite we are leaving off the table and there is also a contender that we're leaving off the table. And shockingly enough, Chris, there is one underdog we are definitely leaving off the table. And I know we've said, and I know this is a driver we only mention in certain style races, but he does have three top tens at this track, and he has led for a he has led 33 laps at Las Vegas, and it's hard to and it's hard to believe it, but it's Recky Spinhouse. Oh God, I thought you were going Rhinestone Cowboy. I, I, oh I, no, I, no, I, I can see. I, you know what? Here's one of the mile and a half enigmas. For years, mile and a half speedways were racetracks where these smaller budget teams weren't competitive at. Now it seems to me the tide has turned, and we are seeing more competitiveness from some of these smaller-tier teams at the mile-and-a-half racetracks. I'm not sure if that's because of the draft, lower horsepower, something to that effect. So having Ricky Stenhouse on the list makes a lot of sense. I'm not seeing from Vegas that they find that, but, hey, a plus 20,000 would get you a good return on that one of Ricky Stenhouse, Jr., but hey, if you want to put him on your top ten list, it wouldn't and want to try to get a decent payday. It wouldn't hurt. Oh, no doubt. But there is two names on here that, first of all, you can't talk NASCAR racing right now without mentioning the name Trackhouse. Ross Chastain may have been a watermelon farmer before uh, before he was at Trackhouse, but now he is a representative oh, of man, the I was- light. I was hoping you'd say somebody else, <laughs> because honestly, Uh-oh. I have one. I have one driver who can easily 
be a contender. He has a win at this track. It's not who you think it is. Mr. Your, your, your pal Amigo. He has a win? Suarez. It may be in the Xfinity Series. No, they're saying in the Cup Series he has a win at this track. I have to look no, it up. No, that was at Sonoma. He does. He has a win at Sonoma. He's only won one other race, right? One. Suarez yeah. only won in 2022 at Sonoma. Did you find the socks, honey, that I was talking about? Yeah. Wait a minute. Um, Why does that say uh, Atlanta? Well, he won at Atlanta this past week. I yeah. said Las Vegas, and I, I, he doubted me on this one. No, 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 no. His win come in Sonoma. His only other cup career win come in Sonoma. Now, we've got to stick with you with Ross Chastain on this one, man. Uh, All right. Daniel we'll go Suarez. with that one. Yeah. Daniel Suarez has a way to go. Um, he's gonna. I actually, I thought you were gonna say Alex Bowman. I really did. I really thought. I think Alex Bowman has a win at this racetrack. Okay, hold on. Now we're gonna shift. I'll send you my list because for some reason I had Las Vegas, and then when it pulled up, it said Atlanta. I'm not sure if I had the right stat sheet. So uh-huh. we're gonna make some changes. We're gonna make some major changes here, Chris. Oh, no. You're ready for your yeah, inbox here. Oh, God. So, wait a minute. We're starting <laughs> over? Almost. We're not entirely changing. There's some names that are sticking oh, out. Oh, my God. Here we go. So, we got – so, hold on. We got – so, we got these – we're going to stick with these four because we've mentioned them. Contenders – so there's your favorites for Vegas. That would be on the favorites side, locked in Larson, Logano, Truex, and Byron. Yes. Contenders. We are going with him. But no Butch. Two. Kyle Bush. That's three. Kyle Bush. Kyle Busch is a favorite, and I'll explain why in a minute. And all right, well, that would sum up the favorites. You throw those four as your contenders. Oh yeah, that Brad K for sure. And then we'll we'll keep our underdogs list as is right now. Hmm. Okay, so on the contender side, we would have to add. Uh, so Denny Hamlin's on there. Contender. Yeah, Kyle Busch would be on the favorites. As to adding to the contender yep. list, um, let's add, uh, is Logano on there? Uh, he's a favorite here. Okay, so Logano Blaney is on the contender side. Okay. Yep. Um, we have Larson and Byron. Um, then we have uh, BK. Busher is going to be an underdog. Tyler Reddick should be on the underdog list. I believe we decided on him. Yep. Uh, look for one more contender. Oh, Ross Chastain should be added to the contender list. So that sums up the um, I'm going to look up. We'll look up his I'm telling 
track house is there. You, you, we do not this year. We cannot underestimate track house for the third year in a row. We put respect yeah, where respect was due with RSK, <clears throat> and we picked up on I'm, that real early. The one thing that I feel like over the last three years that we continue to do week in week out is put doubt into what track house has the ability to do. All right, so I'm completely in favor. Now that I have the Las Vegas stat sheet up correctly, um, Larson, Logano, and Truex all have multiple wins, so we know that. Kyle Busch is his home track. He's a favorite. William Byron, we know what he's capable of after last year, and we believe we, he has more to show. We know what he's going to do. Easy favorite. Um, contenders, Kyle Craig has lost. He has to that favorite. Yep, I got I got Kyle Busch. It's his home track. Um, I think he's only missed the top ten like like a handful, like eight or nine, no, ten times. Sorry. Um, right. So, and then Brad Keselowski on the contenders list um, for good reason. Yes, he has three wins, but he's not in the Penske equipment, and we are seeing the rise of RSK. Um, they're not winning race-winning contending teams on a weekly basis, but do they have the potential to be? Absolutely. Um, Ryan Blaney has yet to win at Las Vegas, um, but has top fives and top tens to show for it. Has finished outside the top ten only six times. Um, Christopher Bell, um, he's another one that's a contender. In all honesty, he has two top tens and four top – or two top fives, four top tens. Ross Chastain, easy contender. And the only reason why I say he's a contender than a um, an underdog is because he, he may have 11 Las Vegas starts, which is more than Tyler Reddick. But Chastain has three top fives to go with three top tens. Um and he may have a worse average finish, but, again, he has the top fives to show for it. The reason why we put Tyler Reddick on the underdog list, Reddick only has four top ten finishes in eight Las Vegas starts. He has yet to score a top five finish. Wow. You know, and we're leaving names. You know, I thought that there would be one more room for one more on the underdog list, but adding Stenhouse and adding Reddick, those are kind of summing up. So who we're leaving off the board is Bubba Wallace, Todd Gibbs, and Alex Bowman. Of course, and not a single SHR car. Don't how much faith we have. Wow. I mean, how about them apples? Uh, also, I mean, think you about know, one to watch. Think about it, Chris. There's back, two cars to watch that we didn't mention here. Right. Go back three years. Yeah, SHR was, was, the, was the freaking pop, was a powerhouse. We always talk about SHR week in, week out. Three years later, we're pretty much leaving them off the freaking list. Yeah. Yeah. And leaving Bowman off the list is probably not a very smart move either. But we, but we have what we have, right? And that's uh. Um, that's the list, and, uh, you know, you can pick anybody that you want to. Um, it's going to be interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, it, the names that I just said, uh, um, Bowman, uh, uh, Reddick, no, Bowman, Gibbs, and Wallace, 
right? And then and then I want to watch. I'm very intrigued at Todd Gillian right now. Very intrigued. Now, I know that we're coming off of two uh, races that kind of support uh, front row motorsports and their style of racing. Yep. But I'm really just, interested that, that in seeing. Right. Me too. I'm very interested in seeing where uh, Todd Gillian, because he's a third-generation on driver, right? The, it, the, Ryan Blaney is better than Dale, Dale, uh, Dale, Dave Blaney, right? Um, it, you know, he's a second-generation driver. So sometimes it does get better with time. Um, it's going to be interesting to see the type of year uh, that uh, Gillian uh, can put together. Um, but, um, you know, that's the list. Uh, we'll get those posted, of course. Uh, uh, your uh, picks are uh, due in the morning at, uh, I believe, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, so make sure that if you're uh, part of the uh, uh, fantasy side of this, uh, you make sure you get your picks in on time and early. Uh, is there anybody else, maybe a dark horse, that you want to look at? Uh, you know, um, will Harrison Burton win again? I mean, uh, wreck again? <laughs> him and we're Super going to Speedways, Vegas so if we were to bet something right yeah yeah him and Super Speedways <laughs> don't get along for sure um no you know what I think there there are two drivers I'm kind of looking at um in terms of I want to see them have at least a decent run um one Obviously, that you have mentioned, Chris, Alex Bowman, he has won here at Vegas before. I would like to see him have a confidence boost in himself. Uh, I think Daytona was pretty much the start. Uh, I know last week, at, I believe last week in Atlanta, it did not entirely go over well for him. I could be, I don't remember where his finish was. But I think for Alex Bowman, um, if he can get a solid finish this weekend, I think that would be a big confidence booster for him and his team after the abysmal um, post-injury season that he had last year. Uh, and the other one, well, unfortunately, I don't really want to say his name, but I guess I'm going to have to because he has two top fives and three top tens at this track and has a nearly top 15 average finish, and that's, oh, good God. Save me now. Mr. Rhinestone Cowboy. Oh, my gosh. Right. And Austin Dillon's in a plus 12-5. So uh, that's a hell of a payout if you pick the guy and he winds up in victory lane. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's probably, between him and Bowman, those are two pretty good uh, uh, odds beaters there. Um, if you were to take a chance now, you know, you get into the 20,000 like it was just a few minutes ago. Um, those are, of course, uh, high-risk bets. Um, as a matter of fact, Todd Gillian's at plus 35,000. So they give that guy no chance, no chance at all. Um, actually, they gave J.J. Yaley a 100,000-point event. So, my God, the payout on that baby for $5. Lord have mercy. Go J.J. Yaley. But, uh <laughs> Taz Taylor, I think that uh, we've uh, adventured off into this topic long enough. It's uh, getting late here. Um, we've went a little bit over the show time, but uh, you no worries. We, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. You know, 
my biggest fear was that we were heading into the no storyline zone. But one thing I did discuss this past week was how fortunate we have been with NASCAR moving in such a positive direction to keep these storylines going. It's almost it's almost made the job so much easier that we don't have to find the storyline. We don't have to dig for it. Between listening to the podcast and and, and and the different sorts of podcasts from the Dale Jr. Download, Action Detrimental, DBC, um, there's a couple of other podcasts that I've ventured out and listened to as well. There's there's always a story generating somewhere. And then, of course, you have your review of the week and whatnot. And, though you know, sometimes it does seem like we uh, repeat the same things week in, week out, especially when it comes to, you know, the experience between the fan and the racer. The one thing I can't stand is the racer to tell you how good the race was uh, because the racer has no idea from the fan's perspective what what's a good race. And I, I feel like that was, uh, you know, an issue that we've ran into once again. Last week it was, how can we go to the Daytona 500 and guys say on public television that they don't want to race there, right? Where's the where's the pride in winning the Daytona 500 at? Well, this past week, you know, you had those guys who are, you know, naysayers saying, well, it was just, you know, it's not real racing and whatnot. Look, man, if you have to sit on the edge of your seat for, for a 500-mile race and, and you were afraid to get up and go to the bathroom because you might miss something, I, that was a pretty damn good race. And it finished three wide. At the end of the race, with a you know a thousandth of a seconds difference with three drivers, a photo freaking finish. I thought Blaney won the damn race. You know, I'm screaming, oh, no, no, Blaney won, Blaney won. And then they said it was my amigo, and I was like, aha, it was my amigo. So you know, I was very, oh, very, very happy about that. Let me, yeah, let me tell you, I had Blaney to pick for Atlanta, and boy, oh boy, I thought Blaney won it. Then when they did the phone and finish, I go, oh, no way. Suarez won. And I'm, and I'm sitting there like, I lost by a damn inch. I'm not even mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Kyle Busch was stuck in the middle there, you know. So, uh, man, it's been a great night. Thank you for being a part of the show. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, this is uh, where we'll turn things over uh, to Taz Taylor to sign off for tonight. Just remember, we'll be back next Tuesday night. Same bad time, same bad place. That's right. We want to thank everybody for listening along to Race Chat Live here on Blog Talk Radio. Never miss a live show on Blog Talk Radio. You can always catch us on any sorts of podcasts like uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Pretty much, if you can if you can think of it and name it, we're pretty much on it. Just search the 110 Nation and You'll find us along with our other shows, such as the 110 Nation Sports Shows that airs on Wednesday nights. Uh, We also have uh, Jared's show coming up soon, Safety to Success, on Thursday night. Hopefully we get the uh, Monday Race Chat Live 110 Nation exclusives coming back, uh, where Chris and Jason interview uh, people in the sports world, motorsports world, wherever it may be. Uh, they get to send talk with you to hear about their careers for about 30 45 minutes um and also don't forget to subscribe to our youtube channel so you can always catch clips of our shows uh we're having more additional content in the works coming out uh in the next few months as well and don't forget to like our facebook pages to keep informed of not only storylines, but also up to date 
with Race Chat Live and also the 110 Nation um, as we bring them to you. This has been the Race Chat Live. We'll see you that time, same bad place next Tuesday night, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 Central. And this has been the Caution Flag Racing Radio. Chris Creighton, I'm the Tasmanian Devil Flaggers. Taz Taylor saying goodnight. We'll see you all next week. Happy birthday, Mr. CJ Sports. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.